The book of Revelation is not a story about the good. It's not a story about the wicked either. It's about both. The book of Revelation is filled with dual-themed passages and visions portraying antithetical characters, the dragon and the woman, the beast of the land and the sea, or even Armageddon, which is the ultimate battle of good and evil. The Antichrist's destructive operation would be entirely useless if most people understood about the moral of the two sides. So today I'm going to share a little secret with you. I'm your host, Valerie, and welcome back to Anti. The Moral of Two Sides I know it sounds like some deep parable or whatever, but don't worry, it is. This parable is found in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, called the wheat and the tares. God's kingdom is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. That night, while his hired men were asleep, his enemies sowed tares all through the wheat and slipped away before dawn. When the first green shoots appeared and the grain began to form, the tares showed up too. The farmhands came to the farmer and said, Master, that was good seed you planted, wasn't it? Where did these thistles come from? He answered, Some enemy did this. The farmhands asked, Should we weed out the tares? He said, No, otherwise you'll pull up the wheat too. Let the wheat and the tares grow together until harvest time. Then I'll instruct the harvesters to separate the tares and tie them in bundles for the fire. Then gather the wheat and put it in the barn. The moral of the story is actually the same moral of the book of Revelations. In order to get the complete redemption you're looking for, you have to allow room for the tares. I had to expound on the resentment of Christian extremism in the last episode. It's the very goal of the Antichrist for us to hate our enemies. It's the Antichrist's goal for us to even hate those who speak, look, or believe differently than we do. As long as we think we owe the enemies or perceived outsiders no kindness, no grace, and no compassion, the Antichrist has us sinking neck deep in our own damnation. I think that while we journey toward our fulfillment and life purpose, the last thing we want to think about is making room for an enemy or an outsider to accompany us. But that is precisely what Revelations is asking both sides to do. Because Antichrist thrives on us versus them, I believe that if more people were willing to live by this moral, it would be the most effective counter-strategy. Jesus didn't push Judas away nor did he take any praise away from the Roman centurion's faith, who was his own oppressor at the time. Jesus didn't make salvation for Jerusalem only. He made it for Jerusalem first. Just as one seed makes way for the many leaves, God orders redemption likewise. He made Jerusalem not the sole beneficiary, but the touch point for salvation for the Gentiles. Jesus, who was just as disinherited as his disciples and followers, was making room for the heathen and the outsiders. So what excuse do we have? Compass, 
Why do I think this moral is so important? After decades of political demonization from both sides of the aisle, we now have a near 50-50 split in America, where both of the major parties believe that the other is trying to ruin the country on purpose. So what do they do? They retreat further toward their own sides and split further and further away from the other, both with the intent to remain politically loyal forever. But the only outcome that is producing is a national divorce. I believe that this moral will help to lessen the tension and hopefully begin to close the divide. I am not by any means saying that we have to approve of everyone's perspective, just to make room for them. In the end, everyone will get exactly what they chose or decided. We just need to learn to let people choose for themselves, even if they don't choose our way. Now, although propaganda definitely played its part in this national divide, I cannot put all the blame on that alone. We are as responsible for at least knowing as much about our opponents as we do our own supporters. And more often than not, we don't. According to a 2020 interview with James C. Scott, poli-sci and anthropology professor at Yale University, many Americans misunderstand the anarchist end of the political spectrum. Just as the word can could refer to a container or one's ability, anarchy has two completely different definitions. The first definition of anarchy is a state of disorder. This definition is limited to individual behavior only. The second definition of anarchy is defined as the organization of society on the basis of voluntary cooperation without political institutions or hierarchical government. This second definition is limited to policy or a political disposition only. Just as a container has nothing to do with someone's personal ability, One's chaotic behavior is not the same thing as someone's political preference for complete autonomy. On the political spectrum, anarchy, the second definition, is the furthest to the left. Everything else after anarchy, therefore, is naturally more and more extreme. The reason why is because an extreme is something that is far removed from a norm or what is ordinary. Complete autonomy is the human norm. Therefore, anything that deviates from sole autonomy, whether on the left, middle, or right of the political spectrum, is not preeminently normal. This is the reason capitalism or socialism are generally not considered as extremist, especially when seen in comparison to Nazism or strong fascism. Therefore, regardless of the political spectrum model that you may prefer, the order of political dispositions are always ranked from the norm to the extreme not from one extreme to another. I personally prefer the compass model of the political spectrum. I like how it includes all of the nuances of each part of the spectrum and how we can see how each variance is positioned compared to another. For listeners who may not be as familiar with the compass model, it looks like an XY plot graph. In the one I like to use, there are 25 different political nuances in each sector of the graph meaning that there is a total of 100 nuances in the entire chart. There are other models that have less or more information available, but look at how different we all are. Even those who may share the same political view might have a nuance that is very different from our own. All the more reason to make room 
for one another rather than push each other away. Like some of you, I also like to think of the compass model as more of a circle rather than a segmented line. I see the political spectrum as a process, a cycle, which means that it is normal for everyone to at some point pass through each phase of the political spectrum. Every group along the political spectrum is not a stagnant ideology where we are required to pick a side and stay there. This goes for the leftists, the moderates, and the rightists. Each group is merely one part of an entire process we call the political spectrum. The left side of the political spectrum tends to be more developed and advanced, whereas the right side tends to be more primitive. There is no one part of the spectrum in which any group of people is supposed to stay forever. In fact, the ideal is for everyone to keep moving. Yes, at different paces, but politics that has a consistently moving body of people will survive longer. This is why it was healthy for our democracy to pendulum swing between the control of the Democrats and the Republicans. It is as unhealthy to remain at any one part of the political spectrum as it is to remain asleep all the time. Just like the human body, politics is supposed to be constantly moving in a continuous cycle, hence the compass model of the political spectrum. Therefore, in my mind, anarchism is proof that the extent of any political experiment or endeavor has been reached because it has grown and developed as much as it could. Therefore, the rise of fascism is an indication that the entire cycle is about to end so that it can begin again. And just as there is a right way and a wrong way to live in anarchy, there is a right and a wrong way to live in fascism. And I do not believe that America has chosen the right way at all. New beginning. It's exactly what the Antichrist system wants. It wants us to view each other as two parties instead of one nation, either our way or theirs, not both. But I have good news and bad news. The good news is the Antichrist can no more stop any nation from going through its own political phases any more than it can stop you or me from aging. The bad news is, is what it can do and is doing is making sure that we choose the wrong way to go through it. In many ways, we do need a new beginning, but not with anger, not with violence, not with hate. In times like these, we need hope. We need help. That's a big ask of anyone, but I'm going to answer. I am going to do my part to help by exposing the strengths and the weaknesses of the Antichrist. Dear listener, perhaps you may have felt identified somehow in one or both of the previous anti-episodes. Maybe you felt seen or heard. Maybe you felt conflicted or convicted. You may have felt that you were deceived by the Antichrist system. Whatever you experienced, I hope you experience more of that in this episode, too. Think of this as your new beginning. Perhaps if we can learn about what the Antichrist values, we will know how to better identify it, not so we can avoid the Antichrist, but rather make room for it so that we can directly confront it. In this episode, we will review the strengths and weaknesses of the Antichrist. The Antichrist functions most optimally in systematic environments of primitivism, fear, isolation, and legalism. For each relative weakness, I will explain how we can use it to resist against the Antichrist schemes, which will paralyze and even overwhelm it. 
As you may recall, in the very first episode, I listed four powerful weaknesses of the Antichrist. Wholeness, forgiveness, repentance, and redemption. Whereas the Antichrist's strengths are attacks, these four are weapons of resistance. The Antichrist is a system, but it's also a spirit, and spirits cannot be shanked. They must be resisted. So let's start with the Antichrist's first strength, its most effective paralytic, primitivism. Primitivism and wholeness. We incubate defenseless things, like newborns or startup businesses. Incubation is for their protection. But there is such a thing as incubating too much or too long. This is primitivism. The best definition for primitivism is the preference to remain in an unsophisticated or simple state, especially well after mature development or advancement. Sometimes primitivism is used to justify or even promote extremist ideologies, such as traditionalism, anti-intellectualism, discrimination, groupthink, syncretism, and newspeak, aka logicide, or the murder of the meaning of words. These are all attempts to oversimplify things that are actually supposed to be or become complex over time. It's true, the ballooning effect that complexity, development, or diversity tends to create can be quite overwhelming, even for those who embrace progress. Simplicity can be very attractive, especially when you hate dealing with complications. It's not wrong to want to keep things simple, but keeping things stuck is not the same thing. This is why things like environmental justice is attacked by the far right as being anything but just. Even in the face of all of the data that spells out how unhealthy fossil fuel reliance is for us and the environment. Obsolescing coal, oil, and gas would be paradigm shifting for everyone, but instead of transitioning into clean energy, primarily white male legislators have been retaliating, slowing down the energy transition according to Oliver Millman of The Guardian. The American Prospect says predominantly white male legislators own over 90 million in fossil fuel stocks. It has a lot more to do about money and power than it does about jobs. The same goes for voting rights, privacy rights, and equality rights. Anything that affects male power or white money goes to the guillotine in Washington. In the 1950s, male dominance and white money were two core pillars that were protected by primitivism. To the far right and Christian extremists, they were both divinely sanctioned. But the legislators of today have been reaping the benefits of that lie for so long that now this is pure rote heuristic. In the previous episode, I mentioned something called divine sanction. Divine sanction was the mentality of most 1950s Christian capitalists and extremists, as they were motivated to extremist rhetoric and or behaviors by a false or unfounded notion that their work was divinely sanctioned by God. Back then, to retaliate against white male dominance was to resist God. But today, primitivism, usually under the guise of quote-unquote traditionalist values, is an unspoken supremacist code of ethics that forwards the interest and advantages of male dominance and white money. But primitivism misrepresents who God is. God will always be who he is, but God never stays where he starts. What is wholeness? 
Wholeness is when broken parts come back together again into unity or working order. As the word itself implies, it takes more than just half or 75%. It needs the whole body in order to be unified. On at least two occasions in his ministry, Jesus told the person that he healed that their faith had made them whole, implying that wholeness is not works-based, contrary to righteousness. Instead, wholeness is faith-based. I'm not saying wholeness is something you can wish your way into, but I am saying it is something you must grow your way into. Whenever Jesus criticized his followers for their little faith, it was always because they constantly refused to go against their religious traditions, even though their prayers and needs were dire. The ones Jesus applauded for their faith were those who were willing to break away from tradition so that their prayers would be answered, such as the bleeding woman who violated several social laws to get healed, the Roman centurion who stooped to a Jewish peasant under his oppressive jurisdiction for his sick servant's sake, and even the Syrophoenician woman who broke layers of systematic laws for her daughter to be delivered. If we want to see the healing we wish to see, we are going to have to break some barriers, cross some aisles, pass some lines drawn in the sand. We are going to have to speak to one another. We are going to have to listen to one another. We are going to have to learn to make room for one another. On the ground, in real life, This type of wholeness is called, well, brace yourself because it is the B word. Yes, bipartisanship. To overcome anti-intellectualist legislation being pumped into our schools, we have to come together. We have to listen to one another and believe one another when we do. Don't cancel. Cultivate. Organize. Vote. Raise awareness. Make the message matter. We have to prioritize people over plutocrats. Wholeness happens whenever both sides make room for each other and come together, creating unity and harmony. It is this coming together that lessens the tension between the two extremes. And as the tension begins to lessen, the healing begins to take place for the entire body. And as the healing begins to manifest, It is that very healing that will serve as a deterrent against present and future extremist agendas and tendencies. Fear and Forgiveness Fear is the falsest sense of power in the world. Fear is not as good at keeping bad things out as it is at keeping bad things in. Tyree Nichols He was 29. He was a father, a hard worker, a light bringer. He was, quote, a beautiful soul, according to his mother, Rovan, in an interview with the New York Times. A Princeton review showed that murders spiked 25% in the U.S. without a congruent crime rate spike. Statistics are revealing that since that 2020 spike, Most violent deaths are acts of passion or rage. Often murder spikes surge with depressions or economic volatility. The level of anger and frustration driving these mortality rates are raw presentations of fear. A mass shooting occurred in a school in Uvalde, Texas, and the entire police force waited in fear, 
while the suspect used military-grade weapons to murder two teachers and 19 students. Children. And that state's governor is still busing immigrants across the country in freezing weather without any care of the children that are on board. Not only did far-right extremists commit insurrection at the behest of the 45th president of the United States, but now two countries have attempted their own insurrections or coups solely based on January 6th. They both failed. All of them were planned and executed based on conspiracy theories such as QAnon, which perpetuates false information and ideologies of fear to develop dark, warped communities with a sense of belonging. An advanced placement African-American history course has been banned in Florida, along with a host of books and topics that cover real American and world history. Historically, book banning and information wars preceded fascist and far-right takeovers because fascists deeply feared populations that were freely informed and autonomous thinkers. Forgiveness is not the only resistor against fear, but it is the most effective. To forgive literally means to carry a burden for another or to carry it with them. So it's not just about how we respond when someone does something wrong. We also need to forgive when things in general go wrong. When life doesn't go as planned, we need others to help lighten the load of the stresses that drive us to the worst version of ourselves. And the good thing about it is that it often doesn't require much. A little help really does go a long way. Something as simple as having someone to talk to can help us forgive the undue hardship we suffer. The CDC report said that violence is preventable. Alleviating life and mental wellness stressors are most effective in mitigating such staggering statistics. What the government cannot do, the community must do. We must lighten the load for one another. There is no reason that our unmet needs should be driving us to such suicide and homicidal rage. We may not have the best relationship that we want, or a relationship at all, but we do need someone in our corner, reminding us that we matter and appealing to the best nature in us. When we see our own people or our own elected leaders mistreat the helpless, we should not stand by silently, but we should speak up and hold our own accountable, or else it could be us the next time. We must shut down lies and misinformation, full stop. We must amend the policies to the people and not the other way around. And we must teach our children the truth. Let them ban whatever they will. You tell the truth, and you tell it every day. Lies have an expiration date, but not the truth. Forgiveness is effective against the isolation tactics of the Antichrist, because it lightens the load each individual carries, making it easier for them to direct their energy into what really matters. You don't need to run and hide. You need you to stand up for yourself. Stop living to avoid the fears of life. We must live by facing those fears with authority, love, and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7 Isolation and Repentance 
Algorithmic oppression isolates people. Misinformation echo chambers isolate people. In a similar manner that an abusive partner talks their victim into isolating themselves away from others, these lower-level antichrist operations work the same way, pulling people away from voices of reason, the truth, and even common sense. Isolation is one of those things that will make you slap yourself in the face in a room full of people and then blame everyone else for the pain you feel. If you've ever been on the other side of this, you know how hard it is to watch someone isolate themselves and then get angry at you for wanting to reach out and help. What makes it so hard is you realize at some point that the only person who can truly show them that they are going down the wrong path is themselves. But their judgment is impaired by their own pain. That is what hurts the most. The reality is, at some point, every single one of us has been is or will be by ourselves. The fact is, sometimes it's just us. But alone and isolated are not the same. An egg must stand alone in its own dimple, but that doesn't mean it has to be isolated from the rest of the eggs. We all need some alone time to get through rough patches, but isolation will drive you over the edge. Being alone is actually supposed to reorient you, to get you back on track. Isolation drives you to depression, panic attacks, anxiety, and exhaustion. Isolation makes you make enemies out of well-meaning people or hyper-vigilant over innocuous things. And in the process, you are blinded by your own pain to the truth of what is really going on. This is why poor people blame other poor people for their poverty rather than Wall Street or corporate greed. Isolations will have black people aligning against other black people because isolated people need to be the first to get out of being alone, thereby doing whatever they can necessary to make sure that other people who are in the same condition remain where they are. But if repentance is the most effective resistor against isolation, what does that look like in real life? This answer is more so for those who realize that they were caught up and deceived by the Antichrist. Let me ask you a question. Pop quiz. We all know that John 3.16 is the hallmark scripture of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Obviously, John is the one who wrote this scripture, but who said it? And furthermore, who was it spoken to? I'm actually surprised most Christians have no idea Jesus was the one who said this scripture. And I'm even more surprised and a little disappointed that most Christians don't know Jesus was speaking not to a pagan, but to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who had snuck out to meet him in the middle of the night. Even though this chapter never states whether or not Nicodemus got saved that night, the implication is no less true. If Nicodemus, who was a Jew, got saved after talking with Jesus that night, who was also a Jew, then that means that Nicodemus would have went back to his job of being a Jew. This means that Nicodemus could not have been saved because he changed his religion. Nicodemus would have had to have been saved because Jesus changed his heart. That's what repentance means. 
I see too often in real life and in reports that isolated people get completely absorbed into doing or avoiding certain behaviors at the expense of their hearts. Several thousand people assaulted the Capitol, brutally beat police officers, and violently stormed their way into the Capitol, and they still think it was the rest of the country that was wrong, even though their reason for storming the Capitol was found to be false. Something is wrong with their heart. Some of their hearts did change, although it took being tried in court in order to do it. I say better late than never, but that is the onus that I am putting on listeners who feel that they may have been deceived into the Antichrist ways. Only you can change you for the better. Legalism and Redemption Legalism is a quicksand. Once you're in it, you're stuck. Even worse, the longer you fail to realize that you are in it, the deeper legalism will trap you under its punitive weight. The only way to overcome legalism is to recognize that you are being oppressed by a legalistic system in the first place. And then you must be connected to someone who is not trapped or oppressed by that system in order to help get you out of it. I think the reason why we are failing to codify voting rights is because we are not connecting with people who are outside of that legalistic oppression that is against it. In a normal, healthy democracy, SCOTUS could codify voting rights, but with politically biased SCOTUS members, now we have to get help from another source. Therefore, it would require bipartisan support from within. An unhealthy conference makes this hard, but not impossible. How do we turn the Republican Party? Turn the voters. Motivated voters run for office, and official candidates change the political landscape. We need more organization with Republican, Independent, and Democratic voters together on key legislation, not just one party. How is anti-voting rights policy legalistic? Let's define legalism first. Legalism is a stalling tactic. It is designed to focus on less important things, such as following overly strict language or stressing obedience, even over moral values, to the point where any good policymaking dies in the incubator. Legalism intentionally tries to avoid necessary policy change or kill it if possible. Legalists avoid problem solving so that they can hold on to expired power. An example would be the Black Codes and the Jim Crow laws. Oh yes, those are definitely still in effect. That is also what the overturning of Roe was. A lot of people actually thought that Alito's reasoning was so legalistic that it didn't make sense. However, sadly, Alito's reasoning does make sense if you look at it as protecting man's power to control women's bodies rather than protecting the autonomy of women. Legalism sees true justice as unfair. Legalism does not want justice, therefore, it wants fairness. So if legalism thinks that it is fair for the poor to uphold the rich, that is exactly what it will fight to uphold. Whereas justice is rooted in truth, Legalism is rooted in offense, 
which makes it appealing to far-right legislators who campaign on grievance politics. Because the Antichrist has been successful in grounding the anti-church in legalistic values, the anti-church finds God and his grace to be offensive. That is why they don't want the God that saves the sinner. They want the God that punishes the sinner. I don't think we have done justice to the conversation that needs to be had about how offensive God's grace can be. If I wrong you and you forgive me, that's one thing. But if I wrong you and God forgives me and you're still holding on to that grudge, now we have a different situation. Why do some people feel as though they have to work double time to live a redeemed life before God calls them home and yet the thief to the left of Jesus clearly didn't have to? That is a complicated question. In the parable of the workers of the field, why were some called in the morning, some in the afternoon, and some late at night, but they were all paid the same wage? That is a complicated question. I think until we can directly confront the complexities of the grace of God, we are going to continue to see God through this warped lens that God is supposed to be simple. If I do this for God, I should get that. If I live right, I deserve this. If I live a better life than so-and-so, then I should get more than them. When you put that kind of math on paper, it does calculate evenly. But grace is not an even calculator. Grace is one of those the math ain't mathin' calculators. And it does anger us sometimes when we feel as though we've been shortchanged by God in comparison to someone that we disapprove of. But if we're going to be completely honest with ourselves, this quid pro quo relationship that we sometimes expect from God is legalistic at best. And as always, I think the reason we have a warped sense of others is because we have a warped sense of God. We quid pro quo with God, so therefore we quid pro quo with people. Even when people have urgent needs or have systematic needs that they are not going to be able to overcome without a large sum of help, legalists are more concerned that everyone pays their share more than they care about everyone getting what they need even if the reality is that there are some people in need of more. The Jim Crow laws that continue to maintain the unequal housing and education disparities, and even the obsolete language that continues to support the legal control of women's bodies will remain stuck in a legalistic toilet flush until we are able to unite voters across the political spectrum. More united voters will run for office and outperform fascist and extremist lawmakers on both sides of the political aisle. And they will be able to help legislate more truly democratic language that will truly push us towards something that looks like a more perfect union. More after this. Want to stay up to date on the latest anti-podcast episodes or be the first to hear the cinematic audiobook release date for Kingdom of Gold? Just head on over to my website, kaylin.info, to stay up to date on all the things you need to know. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot info. 
You can also stay connected with me by following me on Instagram or TikTok. You can find all of my social media handles on my website at kaylin.info. That's C-A-Y-L-A-N dot I-N-F-O. Intolerance. What happens when the Antichrist strengths are allowed to thrive? It helps meet its endgame, which is to corrupt at least 50% of humanity. The political division that is America today is evidence that the Antichrist has completed that objective. And what did we win for it? More intolerant Americans is what? There is no longer room for the both of us in this town. We put ultimatums on the other side to force them to choose between them or us. And when they don't choose us, we either cancel them or find some other way to control them. I think the reason why many Christian extremists believe that intolerance is what righteousness means is because they have a warped understanding of righteousness. But non-religious persons can be just as extreme and can thereby be just as intolerant of people who are different, think differently, or believe differently than they do. People who are not motivated to extremism by religion mistake intolerance for standard-bearing, and the outcomes are just as polarizing. With so many Americans that see primitivism, fear, isolation, and legalism as legitimate reasons to be discriminatory, extremist, violent, or worse, we have now developed what I call a negative culture, A negative culture is when a community of people focus on not doing something rather than on doing something. As I mentioned earlier, it does make a difference when you try to do the right thing versus trying not to do the wrong thing. Your focus changes the nonverbal message that you send. Whereas positive culture often comes across as genuine, the negative culture is often rooted in self-serving motives. So instead of Americans who are trying to have more conversations or are trying to stay informed, now they are simply trying not to be ignored and trying not to be deceived. The outcomes do change when the focus changes, even if the objective appears to be similar. Intolerance is not standard-bearing. Standard-bearing is a positive culture behavior where one tries to produce a meaningful change. Intolerance simply tries to avoid an unwanted change or norm. Intolerance is not righteousness. Right now, get out your smartphone and set up a Greek to Latin translator. I'll give you a second. Now, usually when you translate into Latin, you are looking for the etymological equivalent. This means that you're not looking for a word that is defined the same, like might and strength, but rather a word that means the same, like wax and grow. You will first need your smartphone to search for the word righteousness in Greek letters. Copy the Greek word for righteousness, which is dikaiosune. Then paste it into the Greek to Latin translator. After you hit enter, you should see the result, justitia. This Latin result is the English word for justice. Righteousness literally means justice. Finally, intolerance is not holiness either. In Leviticus 11.44, God said, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Pretty straightforward. However, in Matthew 5.48, Jesus quoted the scripture in Leviticus, saying, Be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. 
Here's another etymology equivalent. Thayer's lexicon says the Greek word for perfect is teleos. Perfect in this scripture means complete, distinguished, or mature, just as the way we see adults differently than we see children. Strong's concordance also verifies that the Hebrew word for holy in Leviticus means mature as well. Holiness doesn't mean set apart as in staying away from certain people or negative culture, but rather striving toward the example of God, positive culture, and not haphazardly, teleos, completely. I concur with Pastor Teray Roberts that in the sense of complete emotional, mental, and spiritual maturity, holiness is wholeness. Play God I will never forget January 6th. That day, they erected a cross and a gallows at the same capital for the same reason. Both of them were there to protect God. Well, protect their version of God's will, at least. Some of the most inhumane violence is rooted in the attempt to protect the name, nature, or character of God, like his righteousness or holiness. As if God somehow is vulnerable to being disreputable. This is actually a deception of the false prophet. The only reason that one would feel the need to protect God in any way is because they feel, even on an innocuous or subconscious level, that they need to be God, or play as an extension of God. It might even be as simple as thinking that because I try to be like God, that makes it okay for me to do some of God's job, such as condemning people to hell. For those who have a more severe version of this dysfunction or maladaptation, according to the criteria in the DSM-5, or the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, these persons often do not have a conscience strong enough that could inhibit them from socially extremist and often abusive behavior. Persons with God complexes often have a warped view or understanding of who God is, and therefore they project that understanding onto other people, condemning anyone who does not share the same view. To people with a God complex, God is an autocrat or a great dictator. But the truth is, is that he is neither of those things. God is Lord. In Hebrew, our English word Lord is Jehovah. Jehovah just means the one who is self-existent, which means that Lord is in reference to the impassibility of God, or the nature of God that is unable to be affected by struggle or pain. That has nothing to do with autocracy or dictatorship. And again, whereas autocracy and dictatorship are negative terms, Lord is a positive one. Autocracy and dictatorship are just ways to avoid being kicked out of power. But being Lord is about choosing to always be present. Even the most powerful dictators and tyrants have the option to close their eyes or turn a blind eye away from things that they don't want to watch. The Lord never closes his eyes. He always chooses to be present no matter how easy or difficult that may be. That is why he is God. By playing, misrepresenting, or impersonating God, these are all different ways of blaspheming or vilifying God, which is a primary consequence of Antichrist operations. In order to effectively deceive you, the Antichrist cannot just make itself seem to be more like Christ, but it must at the same time make the Lord seem more evil. The true Lord, anyway. After all the primitivism, 
fear-mongering, isolating, and legalizing, the Antichrist can easily develop an anti-church that looks at the God who showed grace to both Jonah and the Ninevites and see him as evil because God did not condemn the Ninevites. The kingdom of God is able to see the justice on both sides, but the Antichrist church does not have that ability, not as long as it is under the destructive corruption of the Antichrist. The Antichurch, although sensitive to the fact that God did not condemn the Ninevites, are somehow equally as blind to the fact that God did condemn Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites, which was just as, if not even more egregious than what the Ninevites were doing, which was the entire moral of the parable of Jonah. The anti-church has this warped mentality so that they find fulfillment in condemning sin and unfulfillment in the redemption of the sinner. The anti-church believes that salvation is something that must be earned by us, not freely given by God. And when you boil that down to its core, the Antichrist has developed an anti-church that literally does not see salvation by God as enough. Works and religion are more important to the anti-church than the sinner being saved by grace. Because exerting control over the behavior of others does feel more powerful than being overpowered by grace. The Antichrist has turned the life-giving spirit of the anti-church into a life-stealing dark void. So nothing is ever enough, not even works or religion. Because once their works and religion wins on one layer, they have to go after another. They overturned Roe, but that's not enough. They need to go after privacy rights, and even that won't be enough. They will need to go after equality rights and even that won't be enough. The anti-church is the 50% of humanity that the Antichrist has corrupted so that it can destroy the other side. All the Antichrist is going to do is continue to corrupt half of the anti-church again and use that to destroy half of the original anti-church. Please do not forget, the Antichrist is wired to destroy until absolutely nothing is left. Destruction to Satan is the purest form of justice. The Argument About God in this episode, we have covered the Antichrist strengths that play out primarily in the political spectrum. Since politics is the fastest way to connect with people, and knowing the Antichrist is an opportunistic system, the Antichrist's best shot at God is through human politics. This is why when Jesus based the prophecy of the Antichrist on Daniel 10-12, through 12, he revealed that the Antichrist's attack on God's people would be political. Therefore, the best defense against the Antichrist is to stabilize and improve the health of our politics. Furthermore, politics is one of the few things that can effectively deceive highly religious people. Jesus said the Antichrist would deceive the very elect if it were possible. Therefore, its aim is to use deceptive ideologies to convert the church or the kingdom of God 
into an anti-church, which is the kingdom or the throne of the devil, as noted in Revelation 13. It is my hope that we see one another better, not just through lenses of distrust or retaliation, but I am thinking that maybe some of us will never see our neighbor better until we first learn to see God better. So let's talk a little bit more about God. Please be advised that some listeners may find my views in this last section theologically challenging. In laymen, scholastic, and clergy groups, I've noticed that there is still an ongoing argument about God and His nature. Some people in all of these circles believe very strongly that God is impassable, while others take the passivalist view. Impassibilists believe God cannot experience suffering or passion, passion literally meaning pain. Generally, strong impassibilists denounce the notion of a passable God. Passibilists, on the other hand, view God as having both an impassable nature and a passable experience. This means that the nature of God is impassable, but He is freely and voluntarily capable of having a passable experience. It does intrigue me that there are many people that think God must be either one or the other, not both. But as we have learned today, avoiding complicated or messy answers is one of the Antichrist's prime political assignments. By reducing God to something that is more simplistic, we inevitably create and worship an idol that is better suited to our insecurities, one that we can more easily control and manipulate. While I believe that strong impassibilists are trying to protect God from some type of corruption or disreputation, I believe that humans are the ones who need protection, not God. A God that you must protect is an idol and is not God at all. There are points on impassibility and passability that I personally do not agree with or believe that there needs to be further amending. I define impassibility a little differently than most because I examine the nature and the experience of God through God parameters. These parameters are omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnisapience, omnisovereignty, omniliberty, omnibenevolence, and omnijustice. The meaning of a nature or an experience does change when the being changes. For example, if I mistreat a plant, it will wilt. If I mistreat an animal, he will feel. If I mistreat a person, she will know. Surely then, being God does make a difference when we are talking about having a nature or even having an experience. Whatever nature or experience that we can have, we have no right to explain God's experience within human parameters. It would be as silly as expecting a person to wilt when she is tired. Therefore, I cannot define God's impassibility the way I would define the impassibility of an emotionally injured human. The fact is, God deals with pain and struggle way better than humans do, even the best of us. Human instinct is to avoid struggle and pain as much as possible, but God instinct is to directly confront it. I therefore cannot in good conscience define divine impassibility as a God who is unable to suffer or be affected by pain because he does everything he can to avoid it. 
I have to say that God is divinely impassable because He directly confronts struggle and pain, overwhelmingly, overcoming it, and being over-victorious over those two boundaries. If that is what divine impassibility is, then divine passibility is no longer a threat or a conflict to the nature of God. It is because God is so much greater than struggle and pain that He can perfectly and completely experience both. With this definition of impassibility in mind, I support strong passibility. It is because I have learned to see God as a both-and rather than an either-or that I have been able to be more gracious with people, both supporters and my opponents, both my friends and my enemies. Seeing God better is what personally helped me to make room for the tears. Unlike actual tears or thistles, people do have the opportunity to change, and I want to be a part of that opportunity. I make room for the tears in my life because now I know that I will never get a well done from God without them. This anti-episode was written, edited, and produced by me, thanks to the all-in-one podcasting app, Anchor. For access to all citations and references for this episode, please click the link, which will take you directly to the website page. Please like and share this podcast if you enjoyed it, and feel free to rate and leave a review. Next time on Anti. It's not to corrupt half of cars, or half of trees, or half of animals. The end game is to corrupt half of humanity. One side has to be able to look at the other side and see monsters instead of humans. Right now, if you had a loved one in front of you and a spider, which one would it be easier to beat to a pulp? Exactly. And the reason why is because you don't see it as a human. The sad truth is, the outcome might very well be the same if you had a loved one standing in front of you and someone you hated. <laughs>